Today is the epistle to the Philippians and the chapter 2. While you're turning up the place, it's still relevant to say we're in the threshold of this new year. And because I wasn't able to be here on account of an infection uh, last Lord's Day, I'll take the opportunity uh, to wish you all uh, a new year, not only a happy new year, but a, a new year richly blessed with the presence of the Lord. It's the presence of the Lord with us that really matters, and the blessing of God besides I thank you all for those many cards that were sent, everyone with a message. So thank you indeed, and for your kindness as well. I must say in this congregation, our hearts are overwhelmed with the encouragement of the Lord's people. Often I will say, and rightly so, making reference to the Scripture's Let us turn to this word of life, this book of books, this God-breathed word. Even in our approach to the reading of Scripture, it's so important uh, to recognize again what we already know, what we already believe, but nevertheless... It needs to be written into our hearts afresh, that with holy awe, and naturally with due reverence, but especially with that innermost cry of the heart, Lord, come by and speak to my soul, even through the reading of thy word this day, and the preaching of it too. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things. But every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also 
hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear. That's godly fear, of course. Keep that in mind, with godly fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Praise the Lord for the stirring words of this chapter. Now, in these words of application, we've got to think of ourselves, how we will venture on with God this year. We certainly can call it the new year, but very soon uh, weeks will slip away, and before we know, it'll be one month gone and then another. But the Lord has his people here to shine. The devil wants to knock the shine of your Christian profession and to knock the shine of your heart's desire as you would seek to live for the Lord. But it's God's purpose to have you shine as lights in the world. And that implies the world is in darkness. And it's for the Christian to show by his example, by his words, here is the way to glory, to light up the way that leads to Christ. Oh, God, grant that we may have that special favor from him to shine, to shine for the Savior, to shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Praise the Lord. For the reading and for the preaching of his holy word this day, for his name's sake. The book of Philippians today, it's the second chapter, and I want you to consider for a few moments the words that are found from verse 5 down to verse 11. Some of the most glorious words in all of the letters of the Apostle Paul. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're just going to look at these verses today very simply, and I've entitled this message for this morning, Give Me a Sight, O Savior. Give me a sight, O Savior. Let's unite our hearts together. Let's pray earnestly that the Spirit of God will move in our midst this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank thee today that 
We are found around the Word of God, gathered together, assembled together around the open Bible. And we thank Thee, O God, for a throne of grace and for a Father in heaven who loves us and for a Savior at the Father's right hand who died and rose again for us and is coming back again someday to receive us unto Himself. We thank Thee for the ministry of the Holy Spirit Himself. And we pray now, Father, in the name of Thy Son, that Thou wilt send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to lead us and to guide us into all truth. The Savior said, When He has come, He shall testify of Me. And we ask, O Father, this morning, that in a very special and personal way, the Spirit of God will draw us to the Savior. Help us to see Him and give us, O God, a sight, O Savior, and of His wondrous love towards us. Bless us, encourage us, challenge our hearts, <clears throat> lead us on with Thyself, and grant, O God, that every individual this morning might experience the blessing of the Lord. Maybe somebody here today does not know the Lord. Maybe somebody else, cold at heart, Maybe another Lord lacking assurance. Maybe another Lord with specific needs in their lives. We all need Thee, Lord. Think upon us this morning. Grant the infilling of the Holy Spirit upon preacher and congregation alike. And grant, Lord, that we might be brought to behold the Savior in a way that we've maybe never seen Him before. Lead us on with Thyself. We humbly pray in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. Dear friends, as we have started another year, and just a week now into 2023, there's no better place for us to be than in God's house, around the Word of God, with God's people, and looking by faith into the Bible and beholding something of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed place to start a day the best place to start another week, this being the first day of the week, and the best place to start a new year is by looking at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Many years ago, I attended some meetings, and the speaker was Pastor Ivan Thompson, who went to be with the Lord a good number of years ago. And he testified that starting out in the Christian life, he was somewhat afraid that he would stumble, fall, lapse back into the old life and lose his testimony and usefulness for God. And one night he went to hear an old saint of God preaching at a meeting in Belfast. This old man of God had been on the Christian road for many, many years. And as far as Pastor Thompson was concerned, he had an unblemished testimony. And he wanted to go not specifically to listen to that man preach, but to speak to him personally afterwards and ask him, what is the secret of success in the Christian life? And so whenever the meeting was over, that old saint of God was being escorted into the back of a car and they were about to take him home. And Ivan Thompson went up to that old man of God and put his big hand on his shoulder and said, sir, can you ask me or answer me one question? How can I succeed in the Christian life? How can I reach the end of my Christian experience and look back with as few regrets as possible? And he expected to hear some great theological answer. He expected maybe to hear a short exposition of a verse or two of God's Word. 
And yet that old saint of God simply turned around and quoted the verse of a hymn. And he said, Pilgrim bound for the heavenly land, never lose sight of Jesus Christ. And that's, friends, the simple secret of success in living the Christian life. The Christian life begins by looking to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And the Christian life continues by looking to Him by faith. The Bible says, looking on to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And the Christian life will end on this earth whenever we pass from time into eternity and faith gives way to sight and we see our Savior as He really is. The book of the Revelation says, they shall look on His face. But yet, if we're absolutely honest, It is easy for us to lose sight of Jesus Christ in this present age and in this present world. And I fear today that many have lost sight of the Savior. And it seems today more than ever that people are losing out with God, growing cold in the Christian life, no longer hungry for the Word of God, no longer zealous for the souls of the lost, no longer excited about prayer, no longer desiring to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And maybe if you're absolutely honest this morning, on the second Lord's Day of a new year, if you're absolutely honest, maybe you have to testify, as the hymn writer did, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word. Our greatest need, your greatest need, and certainly, if I know anything about this heart of mine, my greatest need is to see the Savior afresh. The truth is that we can see Him in all the pages of Holy Scripture. All of the Word of God brings us to the Savior. We know that because whenever the Lord at the end of Luke's Gospel in Luke 24 spoke to the two on the road to Emmaus, He opened the Scriptures, and beginning at Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and then in all of the Scriptures, He spoke unto them the things concerning Himself. And the key to successful Christian living is look to Christ. The key to successful prayer, look to Christ. And the key to successful Bible study, look for Jesus Christ. And there are many, many blessed portions of God's Word where we see Him so vividly and so unmistakably. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, you see the Savior in all of His fullness. Isaiah chapter 53. In the Gospels as well, of course, we see the Savior. In the book of the Song of Solomon, we see the Savior. But I believe as we turn here to the book of Philippians, the second chapter... Verse 5 through to verse number 11, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in His humiliation and also in His exaltation. We see a beautiful picture here painted by the Apostle Paul on the canvas of Holy Scripture under the inspiration of the Spirit of the living God. And we see our Lord Jesus Christ in all of His value, in all of His beauty, 
in all of his glory. And these verses are ever worthy of our consideration, ever worthy of our study, and if we're able, worthy of our memorization. They'll stand you in good stead all of your Christian life. And like so many other portions of God's Word, like John 3, 16, or Isaiah 53, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, are inexhaustible. I've considered them, and I'm sure you have as well, different ways from different angles, and yet it's like an anvil that has worn out many hammers. We can never fully exhaust the truths contained in these words. And I just want to look at them very simply this morning under the title of Give Me a Sight, O Savior. And I just want to look at each verse and consider some truths as we consider it. Hope I haven't gone overboard with the alliteration this morning, but look for the L's this morning. Verse number five, we have likeness to Jesus Christ. Likeness to Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. These verses, like the Bible itself, are designed to promote Christ-likeness. As we study the inspired Word of God, the design of Holy Scripture is to make us like the incarnate Word of God. As we feed on the Word of God, as we feed on Christ, as we look into the mirror of God's Word, as we look to the Savior, and as we look for the Savior in the Bible, the great purpose of it all is to bring us to Christ and in some way to make us like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, the great plan of God's pardon and the great goal of the gospel is to make people who are unlike Jesus Christ by the grace of God to make them like the Savior himself. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 29 says, Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And the word that is translated conformed there has the idea of being molded into the likeness of another. Whenever you maybe take a mold of something, and you fill it maybe with clay or with molten plastic or with lead or aluminium, it takes the form of the mold. And the plan of God in saving our souls is to conform us into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I can remember a number of years ago attending a meeting. A young lady from Canada had given her testimony. Then she began to sing. And it wasn't so much her expertise in singing, although undoubtedly she was a beautiful singer. It was the words that she sang and the conviction, the feeling that she sang them with that impressed my heart the most. I have one deep supreme desire that I may be like Jesus. To this I fervently aspire that I may be like Jesus. I want my heart, His throne to be, so that a watching world may see His likeness shining forth in me. I long to be like Jesus. I wonder today, is that our heart's desire? One deep supreme desire, to be like the Savior. Guy King 
commentating on this verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, speaking of the mind of Christ, he said the mind of Christ on this earth was the selfless mind. The mind of Christ on this earth was the sacrificial mind. The mind of Christ on this earth was the serving mind. I wonder today, is that the mind that you have, the desire, the resolve, and the purpose that you have in your life? That your life might be a selfless life, a sacrificial life, and a serving life. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Likeness to Christ. But how do we become like Him? We become like Christ by looking to Him. The hymn writer said, by looking to Jesus, like Him thou shalt be. Thy friends, in thy conduct, His likeness shall see. And so in verse 5, Paul speaks about likeness to Christ. And then from verse number 6 down to verse number 11, he speaks about looking to Christ. And as we look to Christ, we see in verse number 6, the loftiness of Christ. Verse 5, likeness to Christ. Verse 6, the loftiness of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Being in the form of God. Now, it wasn't that Jesus Christ was just like God in some ways. It's not merely saying, well, He was like the Lord. He was like God. It literally means he was God himself. He was in the very form of God, and he himself, in time and in eternity, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The old Westminster divines asked the question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Then they gave the answer based on the Word of God. There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And here in Philippians 2, 6, we see the loftiness of Jesus Christ. Being in the form of God, He counted it not robbery to be equal with God. Notice the words there, who being. The word being there, we get to say it's in the present continuous tense. It's not merely that he is equal with God or is in the form of God. He is ever being in the form of God. He's continually, presently being in the form of God. And then it also says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Who being the present continuous tense, thought it not, that shows us the past tense. So there was never a time whenever he was not equal with God. He is continually, presently, ever being equal with God. And it is showing us the very eternality of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal God. He is the eternal Son. Dear friends, that's why John 3.16 is such an important verse in the Bible. Because it says, God so loved the world that He gave, listen, His only begotten Son. 
And those words, only begotten, are vital, critical verses in that text and in the Bible itself. And yet, tragically, they are words that are omitted, left out from so, so many of the modern Bible versions. Oftentimes it says, God gave His one and only Son, or God gave His Son, or God gave His only Son. But it leaves out the word begotten. Because there's a sense in which every believer is a child of God. Now are we the sons of God. But oh, Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son of God. And the word begotten denotes there that He is the eternally begotten, the everlasting Son of God. He was ever the Son of God. There was never a time in eternity past when He was not the Son of God. There was no time in his life when he was not the Son of God. And there will never be a time whenever he is not the Son of God. He is always the Son of God. And he is always God the Son. And that word begotten is such an important word in the Bible. And the Savior in his earthly ministry kneeled down the point again and again and again. John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. John 10, 37, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And so it goes on throughout the Gospel of John. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. S.D. Gordon was an old American evangelist preacher. And he said this concerning Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that man can understand. We cannot fully understand God. Who by searching can find out God? But whenever the Son of God became a man and lived amongst men, he was ever declaring by his word, by his life and character, by his very spirit and deeds and actions, what God in heaven is like. The likeness to Christ, verse 5. The loftiness of Christ, verse 6. Notice verses 7 and 8. The lowliness of Christ, but made himself of no reputation and humbled himself. There's the lowliness of Christ. The loftiness of Christ in verse 6. The lowliness of Christ In verse number 7, was there one so meek and lowly? No, not one. No, not one. But was there ever one so high and holy? No, not one. No, not one. He made himself of no reputation. And the words translated there, no reputation, in our English Bible is the Greek word kenosis, which means emptied himself or poured himself out. Now, throughout the Lord's earthly life, he still was God and still possessed all of the attributes of deity. He was still God. He was still omniscient. He was still almighty. He was still all-knowing. He was still all-powerful. But at the same time, becoming a man, becoming an earthen vessel or a jar of clay, he emptied himself and poured out his life in an offering of surrender, in a life of submission, 
And in a work of sacrifice upon the cross, he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. His glory was veiled in an earthen vessel. His glory was hidden in our humanity. His glory was shrouded in a, in a jar of clay. But all the while, he was God, very God manifest in the flesh, but yet was made in the likeness of man and made himself of no reputation and humbled himself. And dear friends, having a Christ-like mind, having a mind like our Savior, is having a mind of humility. And we have a lovely picture of it, don't we, in John 13, before going to the cross to bear away our sins, the Son of God took a towel and girded himself and took a basin and filled it with water and began to wash the feet of his disciples, meekness and majesty together, glorification, exaltation, humanity, deity, humility, Holiness and servitude found there in the person of Jesus Christ as he washed the feet of his disciples. Isn't it an amazing thing that the Son of God came into this world at all? Isn't it still more amazing that he was made in the likeness of men? Isn't it more remarkable still that he kneeled at the feet of sinful men and washed their feet? And isn't it still more incredible that even having done that, he allowed sinful men to strip him of his garments, crown him with thorns, and nail him to a cross. Dear friends, he made himself of no reputation. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't stand before Pontius Pilate and say, Do you not know who I am? But rather he went as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The loftiness of Christ. The lowliness of Christ. Look at verse number 8. The learnedness of Christ. It says in verse number 8, Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And listen to what it says. It says, He became obedient. He became obedient. Now we need to remind ourselves and ever remember that the Lord's humanity was a real humanity. His body was a true human body, just like yours and mine. And the soul within him was a real human soul. And yet that humanity was ever joined to his deity and two natures in one person forever. And we go to great lengths to defend the fact that Jesus Christ is God against the cults and the teachings of some of the cults that denied his deity. But we ought always as well to defend his humanity. His humanity was as real as yours and mine. And yet all the while he was without sin. But it says here, he became obedient. Now what does that mean? He became obedient. He became a man that he might as a man, as your representative and mine upon this earth, fulfill every jot and every tittle, every commandment and every precept of the law, every type and every shadow was fulfilled on our behalf through the sinless life and the perfect, perpetual, and active obedience of Jesus Christ. 
And as he lived on this earth, he secured and purchased for you and me a perfect righteousness. And that perfect righteousness has been put on the account of every believer. And the book of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 8 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. He learned obedience in living as a man experimentally in this life, fulfilling the law of God by his obedience on your behalf and mine. The incarnation subjected and open to the Lord Jesus Christ, experiences that he would never have known otherwise unless he had become a man. God is all-knowing. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you are, where you are, and how you are. But the Scripture says that the Son of God tasted death for every man. And the Bible says he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That just means he knows how you feel because he's experienced it himself. What a wonderful Savior. The loftiness of Christ, verse 6. The lowliness of Christ, verse 7. The learnedness of Christ, verse 8. But notice also in verse 8, something of the loving-heartedness or the loving-kindness of Jesus Christ. He became obedient unto death. Isn't that a remarkable thing for the Word of God to say. He became obedient unto death. Song of Solomon chapter 8 and verse number 6 speaks about love as strong as death. And there we see the loving heartedness of Jesus Christ. Having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. He loved them unto death, even the death of the cross. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ came into this world and he was born in order that someday he might die. And that's the heart of the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial, substitutionary, Atoning death of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And the greatest demonstration of the loving heartedness and the loving kindness of our God was the fact that God became a man and died upon a cross so that we might be redeemed and reconciled. It's the greatest love that the world has ever known. He became obedient unto death. Now there are three simple things that I want you to consider about the death of Jesus Christ. We might say, first of all, that Jesus Christ's death upon the cross was a natural death. His death was natural. He really lived. And he really died whenever the Roman soldiers came. So accustomed with death. And they came to the three crosses and they broke the legs of the two thieves they didn't break the legs of the Savior because they saw that he was already dead. He really, clinically, died upon that cross. And so we might say that, yes, his death was a natural death. But we can also say that his death was unnatural. Because the Bible says that death has come into the world by sin. But the sinless Lord Jesus Christ had no sins of his own. 
so he should never have died. But the fact of the matter is, he died for our sins, and our sins were placed upon him, and the wages of sin is death. And so he died naturally, yes, but he died unnaturally because he should never have died. But he died for our sins. And we can even go further and say that while in one sense his death was natural, and in another sense his death was unnatural, the overriding principle is that his death was supernatural. Because in John 10 and verse number 18, the Son of God said, I lay down my life. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. The Bible says that on the cross he bowed his head and he yielded up the ghost and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He died by an act of the will upon that cross. It wasn't that his body expired. He bowed his head, an act of the will, and yielded up the spirit as an act of the will. That's something that you or I will never be able to do. Just bow your head and separate soul from body. But the Son of God did it, showing that nobody was taking his life from him. He was laying it down of himself, the loving heartedness of Jesus Christ. Then also in verse 8, I think we see something, don't we, of the loneliness of Jesus Christ. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's something very bleak about the image of a cross. There's something very solitary about dying on a cross. There's certainly something very lonely, even of the image of a man upon a cross, lifted up from this world, without help or friend or refuge or solace. And yet that's the very death that God chose for His Son. He would die upon a cross. His death would be by crucifixion. And it was prophesied away back there in Psalm 22, 16, hundreds and hundreds of years before the event took place outside of Jerusalem. They pierced my hands and my feet. And that's a remarkable prophecy. It shows us the humanity of Christ. It shows us the death of Christ. It also shows us the manner in which he would be put to death. He would be nailed to a cross. And yet crucifixion was a Roman form of execution. And it was something far, far away from the Jewish mindset that their Messiah would be crucified. And yet all the way back there in Psalm 22, 16, the fact that the Messiah would come and be crucified is alluded to. And it even hints at the very form of government that the Jewish people would be under at that particular time. The loneliness of Christ. We see his loneliness in the Garden of Gethsemane. All his disciples forsook him and fled. We see his loneliness in Gabbatha as he stood alone before Pilate with a mocking crowd in the backdrop. And then certainly we see his loneliness at Golgotha whenever he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I wonder today, is there someone in the meeting and you're lonely? And you feel very much alone in this world. You feel very much afraid and you feel in the darkness. Well, there's a Savior in glory who knows more acutely what loneliness is than any of us have ever known. 
My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a question! And yet the answer to that very question is found in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 59, and verse number 2. If we just change the pronouns for a few moments, listen to what the text of Scripture says. But your iniquities have separated your f- separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And if we just change a couple of those personal pronouns and bring it into the realm of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, we can say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here's the answer. My iniquities have separated between you and your God, and my sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The loneliness of Christ. But notice in verse number 9, you've got the limitlessness of Christ. Wherefore. Now that word wherefore joins the previous verses we've considered briefly to the verses that follow. Wherefore. It literally means in light of, or on account of, or because of. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, the limitlessness of Christ, in light of all that has gone on before, in light of his humiliation, in light of his lowliness, in light of his learnedness, in light of his loving-heartedness, in light of his loneliness, in light of the cross, in light of the fact that he died for our sins and bore the sins of his people, God the Father has highly exalted him, And given him a name which is above every other name. The limitlessness of Jesus Christ our Lord. It says in Ephesians 1 and verse number 20 that God has set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church. The limitlessness of Jesus Christ. There's no power, no authority, no name, no personality, no government higher than Jesus Christ. All things are under his feet. God has highly exalted him. He's sovereign. He's the almighty Savior. And all things are under his feet. And you can know today that regardless of what you're facing now, or will face in the days or months or years, or even, if possible, in the ages, in the millennia to come, all things are under his feet. He lives in the power of an endless life, and there's no situation that you will ever face that Jesus Christ can give you grace for and bring you through. J.C. Ryle said, there is an infinite fullness in Jesus Christ, an infinite fullness in Jesus Christ. One last point and we're finished. Notice verse number 9. And hath given him a name that is above every other name. I believe that reminds us of the loveliness of Jesus Christ. The hymn writer said, Oh, how I love the Savior's name. It's the sweetest name on earth. Now, theologians have differed over the years as to what that particular name is that is spoken of there in verse number 9. I believe that it just is indicating something of his name in the sense of his character, 
His place and His authority. His name speaks of His place in the universe. His name speaks of His position in glory. His name speaks of His person and His preciousness to His people. His name is entirely unique. He's got a name that is above every other name. What a lovely name. The name of Jesus. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Did you ever study the Song of Solomon? Did you ever think about that Shunammite who said he brought me into his banqueting house, his banner over me is love? And then in chapter number 5 of the Song of Solomon, the bridemaids gather together around the Shunammite and they ask her a simple question. She's talked so much about him, just as a child of God loves to talk about their Savior. And they ask her, What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? Why is your beloved so special? What sets him apart? What makes him so different from everybody else, from everybody else's beloved? What is your beloved more than another beloved? And she begins to try to describe her beloved. She says in verse 10, My beloved is white and ruddy. He's the chiefest among 10,000. His hair is most fine gold. His locks are bushy, black as a raven. She talks about his eyes. She talks about his lips. She talks about his hands. She talks about his mouth. She talks about his frame, his stature, his words. And after she has run out of superlatives, and after she has run out of adjectives, she simply says, Yea, he is altogether lovely. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. And this is my friend. The loveliness of Jesus Christ. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend. Thomas Brooks was an old Puritan. And he made this beautiful statement. He said, Christ is lovely. He said, Christ is is very lovely. Christ is most lovely. Christ is always lovely. Christ is altogether lovely. Likeness to Christ. The loftiness of Christ. The lowliness of Christ. The learnedness of Christ. The loving kindness of Christ. The loneliness of Christ. The limitlessness of Christ the loveliness of Christ. And I'm sure today as a Christian, your desire for this year and for as many years as God gives you is that you might know Him more. Paul said that I may know Him. The power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. But not only to know Him more, but to me to be more like Him. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Robert Murray McShane, the saintly Scottish pastor who went to be with the Savior at the age of just 29, had a few short years, five or six years, to minister in the church in St. Peter's in Dundee. And they said that whenever that saintly man of God died and his funeral cortege was winding its way through the streets of Dundee from the church to the burial ground, that the footpaths and pavements were six and seven deep with mourners. 
And strong, godless men wept as they watched his coffin go by. And it was recorded in one of the, the periodicals in Dundee that Jesus Christ himself walked the streets of Dundee in the body of Robert Murray McShane. What a testimony. Shortly after his death, a letter was found in his study unopened. He never had the privilege of reading it. And as that letter was opened by a relative, they read the words of a young woman who had sat in his church a number of weeks previous. And she just wanted to let Mr. McShane know that she was converted during that service. And she described the service and she says, Mr. McShane, it wasn't so much what you said, it wasn't the theology that you preached that first had an impression on me. It was just something about your countenance. How you spoke, your face, your demeanor, and I saw something of Christ in you that convinced me that Jesus Christ was real and my heart was opened to receive him as my Savior. What a testimony. May the Lord draw us to Christ in these days and help us to see him in all of his fullness.